Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Okay, let's get started. All right, let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, thank you for bringing us here again so that we can uh, once again open the pages of your word and um, begin to study and learn more of you. Um, we pray that you will continue to allow us to meet together and to continue to press in, um, even as we realize that uh, uh, times are short. And we ask that your spirit would prompt us and bring to remembrance the things that we're learning so that um, when the times are right, that we are able to put into practice those precious things that we have, in fact, studied out. Father, we also pray for our communities here, uh, starting with this one here at Kehilatu Nava. We ask that you would grow us up gracefully, gently, and yet firmly. Uh, discipline us as a loving father would. And at the same time, show us wonderful things from your word. We want to be a strong community for you in these last days, and we want to be a witness for your son. Draw all men to yourself through the deeds that we do. We'll thank you for it in Yeshua's name. Amen. All right, welcome to another class, Exegeting Galatians. My name is Ariel ben Lyman, and we are in... We are on week... What's the 13th? 14, 13, 12, 11, 10. We're on the 10th week, which means counting today, we have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 left to go. It's a two-part series, meaning 14 weeks divided, um, 14 weeks, two sets of 14 weeks. So we're not going to hit all of Galatians in one setting. But what I hope to do is at least maybe take a bite out of chapter 2 and get up to that far. Uh, we've done lots of background, right? giving ourselves hermeneutic keys to understanding what Paul's talking about. We've looked at the background to the letter, the background to some of the terms, uh, the background to uh, the Judaisms of his day, the background to the Rome of his day. Um, we've done lots of background stuff. I apologize that I keep fiddling with this thing. <laughs> Get somewhere where it... Um, let me give you a handout. I'm all about the handouts. Um... If you look at the syllabus, again, you'll see that it goes 1 through 12, right? When I say syllabus, I'm talking about the very first one that says Exegeting Galatians. And then it's got the numbers down the side. It's got Shomer Mitzvot right at the top in Hebrew. Okay, the last one I handed you was number 7 last week. So that would poise us for number 8, Galatians 3.19, Prevailing Christian and Messianic Jewish Perspectives. But I want to skip number 8. I'm going to go out of sequence for a second. I want to jump down to number 9 and come back to number 8. 
Number nine, excursus, additional tough phrasing. And if we make it back to number eight, great. If not, I'm not that worried about it. FYI, the entire commentary is available on the web. Well, the entire commentary grafted in dot com. I think along the website there's a global navigation area where you got different topics. Right along the top there's our graphic and then some pictures and things like that and a bunch of text. Some right around down there, I think it says more commentaries. Click on that and then on the next page look for, uh, you know, there's like Torah commentaries, feast days. This is all the stuff that I write. Um, I think it's like that one or something like that. Click on that one you'll find it. Hmm? No, it's got it's got at least about 50 pages of the stuff, which is at least enough uh, as much as I'm giving you guys right now. Is it 47 right now? Okay. I just haven't given you guys the full version yet. We make it more if you guys come and attend the second set. So what I want to give you now is number nine. Um, but before I do that, before I give you number nine. I hope you guys don't get upset, upset over the next thing I did for you. How many of you have David Stern's version of the Bible? Okay. Um, how many of you are in Mark's hermeneutics class? Okay. You know Mark's feelings on the complete Jewish Bible. Um, you don't have the, his Bible? Oh. oh, he doesn't prefer it. He, he doesn't think, but it is a very popular version. I, I happen to like it too. Um, but what I did with it is I, fa- I took it in, in my view or in my studies, even though what Paul writes is adequate in the Greek and in your translations per se, we still have to decode him so that I think a translator's job, if he will allow it, will take what is written in the Greek and then paraphrase into the receptor language what he thinks is happening. I think that's acceptable. Some people think that's not acceptable. They think you should just go. It just depends on how you, what your bias is. Do you think we should take the literal Greek and go woodenly over into the receptor language and don't worry about trying to let the person figure it out? I mean, if that were the case, then Hebrew idioms get captured word for word, and sometimes we may not know what they're talking about. You know, so. Um, uh, but some people, a paraphrase will come and get the essence of what the par- what the um, what the words say, and then give you that meaning of it. Is anyone lost as far as what I'm saying? Depends on the person, right? So that you get different, you get different um, opinions and answers when you ask them what are the best, what's the best translation. First and foremost, the best translation is a translation you can read, right? Anyone in here read Korean besides me? Okay, so if I had a Korean Bible, that wouldn't be a very good version for you, would it? No. So that, that becomes not a good version for you. But for a Korean who can't read English, anyone in, have, in here have a Korean Bible? Then all of your versions are bad for them. Does that make sense? So when people say, what's the best version? The first thing I ask is, what language do they, what, do they speak? So the best version starts out in their language. So just keep that in mind, because the original version was written in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, and most of us don't read those as our native languages. But apart from that, it is the translator's job to try and explain what the um, verse means. And if you have to paraphrase to do it, I think it's great. Or if you go literal to do it, that's great. I don't think you're doing damage to the text as long as you're trying to get the readers to understand what it means. So with that as an introduction, what I did was I took David Stern's version, which is somewhat of a paraphrase already, but at least he has taken 
the time to try and explain some of the technical phrases. I took that and launched from that and rewrote his version on some places where I thought he didn't get it right. And with that, I will give you all that version. So I, that's I had to give all that intro because I, I know some people take offense to that. And if you don't, if you do, let me know later on after class. Don't tell me right now. Humor me now. There you are. There you are. All right. So what it is is, if as you begin to look at it, the bold stuff is mine, and the regular stuff is David Stern's. And his is great because he already changes. He already has some cosmetic changes, you know, Yeshua to Jesus, or Jesus to Yeshua, things like that. But he also at least tries to clarify some of the difficult phrases that are going on, which other versions don't. Uh, Mark makes up that version. It's, it's a... Uh, does anyone, did anyone not get... Oh. Mark pulls that version, I think, from somewhere out of his Bible software, and then he cosmetically changes the Jesus to Yeshua and things like that. But more or less, I think it's close to a, a JPS translation. So... Mm, no, JPS is a Jewish publication society. David Stearns is his own unique translation. Which Mark's going to say, the, if you're going to do critical... Common, if you're going to do critical studies like textual criticism, what we call it, then you probably want committee translations because there's safety in committees. But you know what? Sometimes whole committees can still miss it, especially if those whole committees have an agenda that says that the Torah has been suppressed or done away with. The whole committee is going to miss it. So the proof is, for instance, like say in every major English version of, for instance, Romans 10.4, the Greek word telos is rendered... Uh, End, as in Christ is a cessation of the law. But the word telos also means goal. It's better to translate it Christ as the goal of the law. That's a 180 degree difference in, in translations. David Stern picks up on that and, and translates it that way. That's where the committee is going to be wrong when their bias is wrong. So, does that make sense? Uh, who, does he, who does he got? James Trims? <laughs> Can I turn the tape off? <laughs> um... I've got a lot of respect for Dr. Trim. I've, I've met him. We're actually friends. Um, it's David Stern, too. I've met him, too. Um, well, at least by email. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not too fond of his, uh, of, his, of his hermeneutic against the Greek, the reliability of the Greek New Testament. He, he feels there's a little bit of questionable, questionality in the Greek text, and I think that's a dangerous position to take. The Greek is trustworthy. And I think he feels that, no, we can't trust those. We have to go to the original, supposed, you know, ostensible original Hebrew texts or Aramaic texts. But there's simply, n- there's none. At least not all of them. He what? Yeah, he did it too because he's Hebraic. That's the point. The Hebraics are outnumbered. This version is Hebraic. That version is Hebraic. Did you bring your Bible tonight? Gosh. He's got like a one that's kind of a literal translation where it just goes word for word and leaves the syntax in the same order as the Greek too, which is kind of neat. Sometimes it's critical. Uh, but other than that, your KJVs, NIVs, NASBs, all those other versions, the, the committees generally are non-Hebraic, if that makes sense. So when they come to the word like Christ is the end of the law or Christ is the telos of the law, telos of the namos, they have to decide for themselves, does telos mean end or does it mean goal? If it's end, it means cessation as an end. Christ brought the law to an end. If it's goal, it means the Torah continues on. He brings it to a goal, and in a sense, 
Or, as David Stern put it, Christ is, the, let's see, for Messiah is the goal at which the Torah aims. The Torah isn't done away with in that sense. In fact, it's brought, it's exonerated. But anyway, there are other, other places where we have to do word studies and ask ourselves which word is the best nuance to use. Um, and again, there is safety numbers, but sometimes, you know, God can use one man. So I, I like Stern's version. Except Stern wrote with a weakness. And the weakness was that he didn't have the Qumran text that we have today, four QMMTs and things like that. And so he's translating from a, from a decidedly, how shall we say, Lutheran view also. And so he knows Paul's using the phrase works of law and under the law in a technical way, but he doesn't know exactly how to reconcile it except for possibly then it's a misuse of the law, misuse of the Torah. And, what, and we've neatly called that legalism. So David Stern comes along where, where Paul uses two words, ergon namas or upo namas. Um, Paul, uh, David Stern will come along and add like, I think it's like 11 words, uh, the system that results from perverting the Torah into legalism or something like that. Okay. Theologically, that's true. But, but historically, it's wrong. <laughs> that's not the way the Judaisms of the first century viewed the Torah. Theologically, it's true. If you wield the Torah as a legalistic tool, it'll backfire every time. But unfortunately, that's not what the, what the, verse, what the uh, letter meant historically. So what I did for you in this version is I took David Stern's version, and where it's bolded, like for instance, if you turn to page 2, I'm sorry, to page... Uh, Four, you'll notice there's not a lot I had to change. His, his, most of the text is great. Like, for instance, turn to page four, and you'll see some bold stuff there on page 16. I cha- that's my wording. That's where I took the Greek, and using the context and the background setting and our new uh, uh, information, I reinserted what I feel is happening what with, you know, with, with how David Stern had it. So, and then on page five, there's some more. So that's what we're going to do. So with that, I also need to give you... The first part of the commentaries. This is just a two-pager to add to your notes. This is more or less a running verse-by-verse commentary of Galatians, although I did not choose to comment on every verse, because not every verse needs commenting on. Some of the stuff is just crystal clear. There you are. This commentary is entirely mine. It was not written by David Stern, and I did not reword it. It was not written by someone else. I wrote it. Oops. Although if I quote people, and I do quite often, it's in the footnote. Oops. Did we both get one? Yes. You did? Okay. Mm-hmm. There you are. Did everyone get one? So this will be the beginning. This is the longest part of the commentary on the web. This is the ongoing part that's like 50 pages now that's on my computer that I haven't given to everyone else yet because I'm still printing it. It's got a big construction zone in the middle of it. This is the excursus, the additional tough phrasing. And all it is is a really a, more or less a, I'll quote the verse and then I'll comment on it. Then I'll quote the verse and I'll comment on it. Just like any commentary would do. So that's what we're going to do. But first, let's read the, let's look at chapter one and see there's a few things in there that I want to point out. Look at David Stern's version again. Nothing is bolded in the fir- on the first page because I didn't feel there was anything worth changing the wording to. Everything there is pretty easy, which means in every version, except maybe the Jehovah's Witnesses version, the Mormon version, or something like that. But every general Christian version, it reads just fine. Nothing needs to be changed. We just need to talk about the context. So turn to your commentary and look at that. 
because there is there are a few verses that I want to talk about. Everyone seeing where I'm at? Let's read the verse first, and then in the commentary I use the NIV. Don't ask me why. Why I switched over. I just did. In David Stern's version, um, I'm going to highlight verses 6 and 7, which in his version reads, I'm astounded that you are so quick to remove yourselves from me, the one who called you by the Messiah's grace, and turn to some other supposedly good news. Verse 7, which is not good news at all. What is really happening is that certain people are pestering you and trying to pervert the good, I'm sorry, to pervert the genuine good news of the Messiah. And then I'm going to comment on verse 13 as well, but let's go to the commentary first. You guys following me now on the commentary? Excursus, additional tough phrasing. This extended excursus to the tough phrasing um, section is a work in progress with verses added as time permits. Please excuse my construction. If you go on the website, you'll see it only dead ends at about, I think, chapter 4 or chapter 5. And currently I'm in chapter 5, so... In this extended excursus to exegeting Galatians and its tough phrasing, I wish to draw the students' attention to various pasukim that have traditionally led Christian, Christianity towards a passive or negative view of Judaism, Torah, or both. Pasukim is verses. Um, in other words, we're trying to... When I say Judaism, I'm not, I'm not just defending Judaism for Jewish sake, for, Jewish, for Judaism's sake. We're trying to defend biblical truth. And, if that's, and, and in Paul's day, it was either Judaism or Rome. So I'm calling it Judaism because there was no historic Christianity as we know it yet. So that's, that's why I use that phrase, passive or negative view of Judaism. I'm not trying to say that everything in Jew- Judaism is right. Far from it. Rather, in Paul's day, you only had two choices as a believer. Well, you really only had two choices at all. You, you either followed Rome's religions, the whole Mithra system, or you, you could get excused from that and be a Jew. And... There wasn't there, there wasn't the middle ground where you could either be an atheist or something like that. And Paul saw it that way too. That's why for the Gentile believers, they were really between a rock and a hard place. In one sense, he's telling them, and, I, and Ryan and I were talking about this in the car. In the one sense, he's telling them, don't get, don't become Jews. Don't go into the proselyte conversion process. But on the other hand, he's saying, don't go back to Rome. So they would say, where do we go? And he says, tough it out. You know, have faith in Messiah and he'll, he'll see you through. But you're, you're looking at tough times either way. Because the synagogue eventually would not allow you to stay. As a God-fearer, yes. And if you probably continue to support them with money, yes. But you would have no legal status as a, pros- as a non-proselyte. As a Gentile, you had no legal status in the Jewish community. Which means as a le- with, with legal status, you had no covering on the synagogue. So if you weren't a Jew, eventually you could not be excused from, say, the Roman emperor worship. At least from the synagogue's point of view. They couldn't claim you as their own. They couldn't say, oh yeah, this guy's one of ours. He, you know, he doesn't have... For instance, if the uh, centurion showed up the synagogue door and said, that lady sitting in the back, we have reason to believe that she's a Gentile because she wasn't at the um, pagan feast last week. And, and we have people looking out for her. Is she one of yours? Is she a Jew? Does she convert? If they said no, then she's busted. See what I mean? So, um, because she's, she's hanging around the synagogue. And yet Paul told them, don't convert. You know, because they, they get the wrong reason for conversion. They had the wrong ideas about conversion. And yet he's saying, don't go worship the emperor either. So, and there wasn't no First Baptist Church of, of Rome that they could just go down to the corner. So they, they were in a pickle. The Jews were exempted and the Romans were Romans. So that's why I use that phrase there. Such verses, when removed from the larger context of either Paul or the situation facing the new believers in Galatia, will usually make Paul out to be the inventor of a new religion called Christianity. 
a religion viewed as superior to Judaism and the Torah that upholds it. We know Paul didn't invent a new religion called Christianity. However, a Messianic Jew in their day was something radical. A person who was true to the Messiah and yet true to Judaism was unique. But from a, and I'm using air quotes here, from a religious point of view, he was a Jew. Because he held to his Judaic practices. He kept the feasts, he kept the Sabbaths, kept kosher, all that stuff. When we say he didn't invent a new religion called Christianity, he did, we know he didn't step on the scene and say, okay, everybody, now that you have faith in Messiah, leave Judaism, leave Rome, and let's worship as what we would now recognize as modern-day Christianity, whether you pick it as Protestantism or Catholicism. Either way, Rome would not have allowed it. New religions, not happening. They are, that's, that's treason against the emperor. New religions, because the emperor himself was revered as deity. So Rome said no new religions, and they allowed Judaism and taxed them heavily for it. So we know he didn't invent a new religion. What he did come along is, is try to fan the flames and, and further the cause of what we would call biblical relationship with God, which was within the context of the Judaic Melu. He wasn't saying to the Romans, believe in Christ, but still practice Roman uh, 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 pagan things. He was saying, come out of that and and graft yourself into Israel because that's your true identity now. You've joined the fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, the festivals are yours, the promises are yours, the Torah is yours. You're Israelites indeed. You're just not Jews. You're Gentile Israel. That's what he's trying to tell them. And that is not really what historic Christianity uh, defines himself as. Does the church today define herself as Israel? Yes or no? Yeah. If she did, and I don't mean spiritual Israel, if she did define herself as historic Israel, as joining herself to Israel, then she would read Israel's scriptures and keep Israel's uh, requirements. Or that's uh, Israel's... Uh, um, the things that God gave to Israel, Israel's laws, the Torah, obviously. But she doesn't see herself as that. She either sees herself as A, replacing Israel, or B, coming alongside of Israel as another people of God, albeit the church. The church, we're not Israel, we're the church. Paul's not going to say that. Paul's going to say, no, the church is remnant Israel, is what Paul's going to say. So, since you're remnant Israel, you do what God tells Israel to do, which is the Torah. However, since we have since we have indeed shared the proper historical and theological background to the apostle and his circumstances, as far as we can tell, we are now ready to read these verses, indeed the whole letter, afresh with new understanding. To be sure, the context will reveal that in the end, Rav Shaul personally championed the cause of biblical Judaism and tore true obedience to God and his Messiah. Or I could I could very easily say biblical Christianity. If you want to say that, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't have a problem with that. As long as you say biblical Christianity. And I don't mean Catholic Christianity. I mean biblical Christianity. Before we invented the whole papal system and brought in all the worship of the saints and the rosary and the Marian worship and all that other mess. We're talking about we're talking about where the first century believers in Yeshua did what Yeshua did, which was what? The Torah. That's biblical Judaism. That's biblical Christianity. Which means it's in the middle. You got Judaism straying on this side away from Messiah, and you have Christianity straying on this side away from the Torah. Only in the middle do we have the Torah true believer who practices both biblical Judaism and faith in Messiah. So the church needs to come back toward their roots and the synagogue needs to embrace Messiah. And in that middle part is where we find ourselves, riding the fence. Real uncomfortable, ain't it? 
So, to be sure, the context will reveal that in the end, the Rav Shaul will personally champion the cause of biblical Judaism and toward true obedience to God and his Messiah. What is more, when properly interpreted along their first century, uh, century theological and sociological lines, these Pasukim clearly envision a closely knit Torah community unified under one Messiah and one Torah for both Jew and Gentile alike. Paul is saying to the Gentile believers, stand firm in faith in Messiah, but stand firm as Israelites. Don't abandon Torah and don't abandon Messiah. The synagogue abandoned Messiah, the church abandoned Torah. I will spend only enough time on each verse as to unlock the meaning for the student. If a verse contains multiple issues and warrants more attention, then I will allow more information to be subpoenaed. For this exercise, differing versions of the Bible may be utilized, but the New International Version will be my primary source just for the verses and quotations. My own comments when necessary, paraphrasing, will follow immediately after each passage when necessary. <laughs> yeah, every one I quote, I, I comment on. Why would I even quote if I wasn't going to comment on it, right? Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Quote, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. The reason I picked this verse out, even though that none of the wording is, is wrong, the reason I picked this out is because if you read any commentary on Galatians, they'll usually start in this verse to set up the background to Paul's letter. to tell you what's about to take place. And when they get to this part, they tell you that the other gospel that others are teaching is actually the gospel that you need to keep the Torah. We already know that that's the church's view, that Paul is combating a Judaism in the first century that was teaching that you had to keep the Torah if you were, if you wanted to be faithful to God. And basically the Gentiles are kind of caught in the middle. They're like the prize. You got the synagogue on one side and Rome on the other side. And the Gentiles are like, you know, which way should we go? Which way should we go? And, the Judaisms are kind of coming along and putting their arm around the, the fresh, new, tender Gentiles and saying, what you really need to start doing is keeping Torah, because that's the way to follow God. And yet Paul, under revelation by the Spirit, I'm speaking as if I'm church now, you understand that. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, has to come along and tell the Gentiles, no, 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 no. Torah's done. It's dead. Judaism is, is done. Christianity is in. And I'm, obviously I'm speaking hyperbole, but... Um, Come back, come away from Judaism, come away from Torah, no festivals, no feasts, no Sabbaths, all that's done, just walk in grace, go on your merry way and walk in. Don't let, don't let them put you back under the law. Since, Judea, since that's the view that most commentators take, I had to pick out this verse, and then my comments will explain why. Comments. By his astonishment, taken to be rhetorical, obviously, because he's, he's not astonished, we learn that Shaul has invested precious time and effort in these Gentile believers, perhaps having visited them twice before finally pinning this letter around AD 55 or 56. That's according to um, Spiros Zodiades, the complete word study New Testament. Um, the villains of the peace, of Paul, you know, the people that Paul is really angry about, the people that are getting under his skin, they are identified variously as, by these different names, Judaizers, legalizers, or influencers. Now I put a little footnote under Judaizers because that, that word um, in Greek, eudidzane, is actually found in Paul's letter. Eudidzane, from which we get the word Judeize, or um, Eudaidzo. Later on, we're going to find where it's a, it's a, a noun. Um, but the Jew, I'm sorry, it's a, a, a verb. The Judaizers, as a noun, Eudaidzane, is in fact what the Greek says. But when we say Judaizer today, because if, if you look up the word Judeize, what it means. In fact, let's just look down there at number 22. Footnote number 22, according to the TSBD, Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary. What does Judaize mean? 
to adopt Jewish customs and rights and imitate the Jews. Okay, is it bad to live like a Jew? No. Even as a Gentile, is it bad to live like a Jew? No. In fact, for a Jew, it's, it's a good thing, right? You know, if you're a Jew, you should live like a Jew. So it's rather negative to say Judaizer. It's actually almost racial. It's pejorative, in my opinion. Here's my word, Elizabeth, pejorative. Um, it's, 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 it's a downgrading. It's, it's, it's a speaking of a less than, and it's kind of condescending to say Judaize. So even though the Greek says Judaize, and we don't pick legalizes either, because that's, that's no better. It's like calling someone a Pharisee in, the, in Christian circles. You Pharisee. Hello, Paul's a Pharisee. What are you trying to tell me? That's an insult too. So what we do is um, people like Mark Nanos have taken the word influencers, which is more neutral. They were trying to influence the Gentiles to take a particular position. And when you say influence, that influence can be either good or bad. But to use the word Judaize is just definitely come out as bad. Because in other words, if I told you, man, I want to I I Judaize you all. And if, and if this were a standard church setting, you'd all be like, oh, he's going to Judaize us. But what if I said, I want to influence you guys? Well, then you're not presupposed to what I just said. Influence is neutral. So I use the word influencers. Um, and influencers is a term that was coined by Mark Nanos, but popularized by Tim Haig. So these people who are the villains of the peace, they have succeeded in persuading the new Gentiles that covenant standing read in Christian parlance as saved, was not granted via faith in Yeshua alone, but rather conversion to Judaism was needed to finalize the membership. Now I'm giving the historical background. Now I'm telling you what I believe Paul's, Paul's mission is, is to uproot their influence. And I'm telling you what the other gospel is right now. Okay, It's not a gospel that says you should not, that you have to keep Torah. It's a gospel that says you have to become a Jew. I'm just telling you what it is right up front. Um, so the influencers felt that... Um, Covenant standing was not granted to granted via faith in Yeshua alone, but rather conversion to Judaism was needed to finalize the membership. Shaul saw this persuasion and in its apparent successful campaign as a deserting of the one who called you, namely the Mashiach. Because this new errant theology that Gentiles must become Jews before they can achieve full and lasting covenant status by God, viz. be saved, ran counter to the genuine good news that in Messiah both Jew and Greek are on equal covenant footing, Shaul refers to this as another gospel. The Greek is euangelion, that's gospel. News of good is literally what it means. Which is really not good news when compared to the truth. Now let me pause. It was good news for someone wishing to escape Rome's persecution. You had someone who was fed up, you have a Gentile over here. This is my Rome side of the room, that's my synagogue side of the room. You got someone who's fed up with the paganism of Rome, and they've, they've been eyeballing the Judaism over there, they've been eyeballing uh, the temple and, the, and its sacrifices and, the, and they're really thinking, man, that looks good. They don't know about Yeshua yet, but they just know they're sick of Rome and its paganism. And so they're looking for an alternative and the only alternative is, is move, move away. I mean, get out of the Roman Empire, which was pretty impractical. So if they wanted to, to, to leave Rome's paganism, they would, they would go talk with a, an influencer which is you know, more or less a Jewish salesman of sorts, and he might try to sell them the pitch of becoming a Jew. Because in becoming a Jew, you get a lot of stuff. I mean, you still, have to, you still, under, you still get persecuted, but at least you're out from under Rome's thumb. So in that sense, that's good news if you're trying to escape Rome, right? That's why Paul calls it another gospel, not just another message. Because for the, they, were, they were swallowing that. Wow, that's pretty good. Gosh, I can, you know, I can go by that. Um... 
Let's see. The good news, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Pertinent for our study is the historical fact that the first century Judaisms were not teaching salvation by following Torah. That is the point of contention for the church today. The church sees Judaism in the caricature of teaching Torah as, as, if, as if it's a works-based relationship. That's not how the first century Judaism uh, wielded Torah. And that's what I say there. <laughs> Pertinent for our study is the, is the historical fact that the first century Judaisms were not teaching salvation by following Torah as the later emerging Christian church might assume. That is an assumption on their part. And unfortunately, David Stern didn't do any better. And he's Jewish. He, he makes the villains of the piece people who are legalistic, wielding Torah for a salvific perfect. All right. Even though he has a little bit of knowledge about the prosite conversion, he doesn't, he doesn't drive that point home far enough, in my opinion. And again, he was working without the presence of the 1995 discovery of the 4QMMT. So you can't blame him for the job he did without that information. Other than that, the church just kind of scratched their head. What does works of law mean? Maybe it means obedience to Torah even though they couldn't figure out how it fit into the letter. So that's our job right now is to try and figure out what it really means. The other gospel that gave Shaul such consternation was the prevailing proto-rabbinic view. I say proto because technically there weren't rabbis yet. They were proto-rabbis. The term rabbi didn't really come to pass until a little later, so it would be anachronistic to call them rabbis. But proto-rabbinic view that only Israel alone shared a place in the world to come. That is, only Jews were granted covenant membership. And that's why they held to that halacha. You want to get into Israel? you got to be a Jew. Paul, of course, disagreed. In this view, the view of the first centuries, Gentiles must convert before they were considered full-fledged members. In this view, Torah was not the means of salvation. No, no, no. Works of the Torah, defined elsewhere in this commentary, were the prerequisite to salvation. In this view, Torah simply helped to maintain membership granted to native-born and proselyte alike. I, Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi, personally disagree with the central tenets of this view. I had to write that in there because sometimes when you read somebody's commentary, you can't tell when they're quoting someone else or where they're reading their own thoughts. I put that down there in case someone suddenly thought, gosh, Ariel, you, you, it says in your commentary that blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, hello, I'm quoting the, the, the prevailing view of the first century. All right, so that's the background to the letter. That's what drives Paul to write the way he writes. And that's why I made that particular commentary. Let's look at the next one. Verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Now, I can promise you, if you look up any standard uh, Christian commentary, and why do I keep saying Christian? I know some people say, gosh, are you a pick on the Christian church too much? Has anybody read any rabbinic commentaries on the book of Galatians lately? <laughs> yeah, okay, that's why. We only have Christian commentaries available. I mean, we have very few rabbinic stuff that mentions the New Testament. But for the most part, they don't, they're, not, they're not studying it. They, there's no need to, at least in their synagogues. They're not going to be... They're, they're not assuming that their membership's reading the book of Galatians and they have to comment on it, which is just pragmatism, right? Uh, it's just practical. So... If you look up a standard Christian commentary, commentators will show this verse as proof that Paul left Judaism. Isn't that what it sounds like the verse is saying? You've heard of my, for, my previous way of life in Judaism. It sounds like we're stuck. Paul did leave Judaism. He says it right here. My previous way of life in Judaism. What does he mean? Okay, let's, let's decode him. Comment. <laughs> it is critical to a proper understanding of Shaul that we recognize the syntax in this term, in this case. This is why I chose the NIV this time, because they left the syntax in the right order. NASB has it right as well. The syntax refers to the word order. That's all I mean. 
Um, the syntax of the Greek of the verse. The word order shows that previous modifies the phrase way of life. My previous way of life. And not previous Jewish life. So what we, as some might presume, the careful observation is made to show a shift within the paradigms of Judaism and not outside of them. How he lived as a Jew. Not the fact that he lived as a Jew. Yeah. Paul did not leave Judaism for a new religion called Christianity. Unless, and I'll allow this, this will be an allowance. This is an exception. Unless you define Christianity as biblical Judaism, then he did leave Judaism for Christianity. If you want to define Christianity in its first century context. But if we define Christianity as it stands today as a religion that decidedly left the synagogue and left their Hebraic roots as it is today. There is a parting of the ways right now. Christianity is defined over and against Judaism today. Paul did not leave Judaism for that Christianity. That's what I mean by Christianity there. What he did do was switch party lines within Judaism from a non-believing Jewish Pharisee to a believing in Yeshua Pharisee. But he was still a Pharisee. And the proof is in his own admission. He says in the book, later, latter part of Acts, I am a Pharisee, not I was a Pharisee. Sounds like we're picking at words, right? Real important, though. To a believing Pharisee, all within the confines of first century Judaism. Tim Haig has a quote that I thought was very well. We should note carefully that the, that the word former, which is, I believe that's um, pate. I think that's an, um, I'll have to look at that second Greek letter. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's an Omicron and not an Omega. Um, which, when functioning as a particle, means once formerly. Functions to modify the, the word manner of life, which is the Greek word anastrophe, lifestyle. It does not imply that Paul formerly lived within Judaism, but that as of the time he wrote the, Galatian, wrote the Galatians, he was no longer living within Judaism. What he is contrasting is his personal halakha before and after his faith in Yeshua as Messiah, not his former life in Judaism as opposed to his present life apart from Judaism. All of this helps us to understand the, the background of the author. If he really was saying, you've heard of my former way of life in Judaism, then we have a legitimate case to make that he's leaving Judaism and that that's the, that is the tone of the letter for the rest of the letter. Because this is early up front, right? He is going to be letting them know, look, Judaism is dead, it's done. Get away, get out of it. Go be Christians. But instead... Since we understand that there aren't any, there weren't many choices in the first century. You know, there wasn't Judaism, Buddhism, Christianity, paganism. You know, there wasn't a, a, the, the smorgasbord that we have today per se. At least within the Roman Empire. I'm not saying in other parts of the world. We're just talking about for the small slice of the world called Galatia and the rest of the uh, of uh, Middle Eastern piece of land. There, um, there was Judaism and then there was Rome, and Rome allowed Judaism but nothing else. They didn't allow the Buddhists to come in and set up shop on the quarter. There wasn't any. And they didn't allow the Christians as defined over and against Judaism, but also defined over and against Rome to set up shop either. There wasn't any Christianity like that that we know it. So Paul is not saying I've left Judaism. He's simply saying I switched party lines. I used to be an unbelieving Jew, and now I'm a believing Jew. But the point is I'm still a Jew. I am a Jew. I am a Pharisee. That type of stuff. So that's all. We're all. We're all. That's the only place I want to go today because we only have three minutes. Next week, I think we'll start with chapter two and some of the verses there. But go home and read the entire uh, book as I gave it to you there, David Stern. See what see what you can make of. For instance, look at um, just just for just for grins. Look at your chapter two verse. Let's look at verse sixteen. 
And we'll close with that. We'll close, yeah, we'll close there. Somebody, well, I got KJV up here. Everybody, see, everybody had their commentary there? See what we're talking about? Let's read it out of KJV, and then we'll read it out of uh, my doctored up version. I, by the way, I doctored up KJV too. I just didn't give it to you guys. Because I wanted to see how it would read both ways. Figure out which one I would give you guys. I ended up giving you David Stearns. Okay, here we go. Galatians. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. And, verses 15 and 16. Let me read it out of KJV, and then we'll read it out on my doctorate version. See what happens to the, to the, to the tone. Galatians 2, 15 and KJV reads... We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. Verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now let's read my doctorate version. We are Jews by birth, not so-called goyishy sinners. Verse 16. Even so, we've come to realize that a person is not declared righteous by God on the ground of his conformity to a man-made ritual of conversion. I put conversion in in parentheses uh, there for a reason. But through the Messiah Yeshua's trusting faithfulness, therefore, we too have put our trust in Messiah Yeshua and become faithful to him in order that we might be declared righteous on the ground of the Messiah's trusting faithfulness and not on the ground of our conformity to a man-made ritual of conversion. For on the ground of conformity to a man-made ritual of conversion, no one will be declared righteous. And that's my doctor version. Then we'll go back and find out if it's been justified. We'll see if we can work the letter and find out if I've really just stepped off the deep end or should I have just left the phrase the Greek phrase there's um, um, er, ergon namos which is works of law and so if we just read it, put that in there we're not we're not declared righteous by God on the ground of works of law we still have to ask ourselves what the heck does works of law mean right so that's why I did what I did there so any questions real quick before I close for you who were new this time, this might have been either very confusing, offending, enlightening. All I can say is don't judge the book by the cover if it was disturbing. Um, give me at least probably three classes and, and, then, and, then, and then toss me. But don't toss me on the first class, I promise. I'm not, I'm not trying to teach heresy. And if I am, great. Gotta love them, gotta love them. See, my, my phone says 805, so, all right. Yeah. All right, well, let's close in prayer. That's Mark's five-minute warning, so you guys can take a break. Mark's next class is hermeneutics, and it is a great cl- class. It'll be right in this classroom if you want to stay for it, uh, and it starts in five minutes, so let me pray and let you go. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to teach and the opportunity to learn. Um, I realize that I am... Um, held accountable for that which I uh, present to the class. So, Father, I ask that you would give me uh, mercy and grace as I uh, plot through the material and then uh, present it back to the group. And I also ask that you would continue to press each one of them towards excellence, towards uh, um, grasping and understanding more, because they have no excuse. If Ariel's teaching uh, error, then they have a responsibility to study it out for themselves. So I pray that if they are... um, if they are uh, uh, enriched, it's not because of what I said, but it's because the Spirit has um, revealed it to them. And may they be grounded and rooted in the, in the truth of Messiah because of what the text says, not necessarily because of what Ariel says. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Grow us up and be merciful to us as we continue to stumble. And we'll give you the praise and glory in Yeshua's name. Amen.
That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>